good song to sing, He Will Hold Me Fast, before we read Genesis 16. Right, this is in the Abraham narratives. This is one of the, the low points in Abram's journey of faith or his life of faith. And so if you're of the, you're of the, the bent or the tendency that when God does a kind work to convict you of error, shortcoming sin in your life, if you're of the, of the bent that that conviction oftentimes begins to fall over into the way of self-condemnation or hopelessness or despair, right? you, you need to sing to yourself songs like, He Will Hold Me Fast. Because when you go to passages like Genesis 16 and you see that even men like Abram and Sarai and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and on and on and on, that even with all of the commendable things that they do living by faith, there are a lot of embarrassing failures. That's what happens when weak, fleshly people try to live by faith and conduct themselves not by what the eye sees, but what the ear hears. It's hard. So Genesis 16, verse 1, follow along with me as I read. Now Sarai... Abram's wife had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar... Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, and you will call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live to the east of all his brothers. 
Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, help us to see clearly now the difference between living by faith and living by the flesh. Strengthen us. Cause us to turn our eyes to you when we find ourselves in difficulty, in times of waiting, in times of confusion, and even doubt. So that we would put our trust not in ourselves, but in the God who has promised to give us all good things. Thank you for the confirmation of those promises through the covenant cutting of your own son and for the seal of your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So this is what it looks like, Genesis 16, when faith gives way to flesh. We're coming off of two chapters, Genesis 14 where Abram has this resounding victory against these foreign kings to deliver Lot, to deliver uh, citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, bringing them back home, doing that at his own risk, to his own hurt, to his own cost, settling for, being satisfied with the blessing that Melchizedek pronounced over him, reminding him of the fact that the God of heaven and earth who possesses these things is the one who supplies Abram with his blessing so that Abram could then turn and refuse the gift, the offering that the Sodomite king would give him. Chapter 15, Abram is wrestling with the fact that the Lord has promised to give him reward many descendants, a land that they would call their own, and yet Abram has not even had a single child born to him. How will the promises be maintained? How will they be fulfilled? And the Lord reaffirms Abram of his commitment to the promise, and in 15.6 we're told, now Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. And the Lord goes through and he cuts covenant with Abram putting all of the obligations of the covenant on himself while Abram is set aside as if to say, all the good things that I have spoken to you, I will see to it that it is fulfilled. So, success over enemies in Genesis 14, a reassuring, confirming word from the Lord in Genesis 15 along with a significant, dramatic covenant-cutting ceremony to erase any doubt that Abram may have, and then we come to Genesis 16, and we get this. I'm going to break Genesis 16 down into two parts. The first part, verses 1 through 6, if this whole chapter essentially gives us a picture of, of faith giving way to flesh, in the first six verses, the way that we'll approach it is by saying that when faith gives way to flesh, 
we are tempted to domesticate God's promise. I'll explain what we mean by that in a minute. So in the first six verses, we're tempted to domesticate God's promise. And then in verses 7 through 16, with the shift to God's intervention and deliverance, most clearly through Hagar, we want to take note of the fact that even when our faith gives way to flesh, God is able to deliver us from our domesticated mess. So we're tempted to domesticate God's promises, and when we do, God is able to rescue us from our domesticated mess. So here it is, the domestication of God's promise. I want to start off on a sympathetic note with both Abram and Sarai. We're told in in chapter 16 that they have been in the land for some period of time now. Ten years they've been in the land, and at the end of the chapter, we're told that Abram is 86 years old when Ishmael is born. Ten years in the land, holding on to the promise that this is the land that I'm going to give you, and yet they don't, un- they don't own a square inch of property in Canaan. Ten years of living in the land, holding on to the promise that God is going to give them innumerable descendants, and they don't have a single one. So Sarai looks at the situation, assesses their circumstances, and says to her husband, Abram, in verse 2, behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Is that a true statement? Maybe, yes, no, I don't know. At the very least, we can say, if God is not actively preventing her from bearing children, He certainly is not actively giving her children. So let's just, let's just take it as true that the Lord has prevented her from bearing children. At least we can say about Sarah's comment and her interaction with Abram that at least Sarai recognizes who's running the events of their lives. God is the one who's in control. God is the one who has promised. God is the one who has to fulfill. And if we don't see a fulfillment going on, well, it must be that God is not fulfilling the promise. It's very God-centered. It sounds very orthodox, right? Orthodox in terms of true to the faith, right? God rules and reigns. He does whatever He wants. You can understand the frustration. Again, we mentioned this last week. Abraham is said to be 75 when he receives the call. Sarai is 10 years younger. She's 65. They're now approximately 85 and 75, the two of them together, and they still have no descendant, no heir. If time is still there in the little hourglass of biological functions, it's not there for much longer, and by all accounts, it's probably already, the sand has probably already fallen through. So what do you do? Well, you, you use your reason. You use your discernment. You use your judgment. And you say, well, obviously God hasn't given us a child, 
it must be that the way that this promise is going to be fulfilled is for us to think about an alternative way that God is going to provide for us. Here's what we can do, Abram. You can take my wife or my maid. I can give her to you as a wife. She's younger. Odds are pretty good she can conceive, and we'll count that kid as ours. Problem solved. Let me provide a little bit more sympathy for Abram and Sarai before we look at the problems with with what they're doing. First, do keep in mind that at this particular point in the Abram story, in the Abraham narratives, the most clarity that Abraham has received has been in the previous chapter in chapter 15 where God tells Abram very specifically that someone from your own body will be your heir. He does not say explicitly, one who comes from you and Sarai will be your heir. He just simply says, one who descends from your loins will be your heir. So, in chapter 16, if Hagar conceives and a child is produced, isn't that still in accordance with what God said in chapter 15? Wouldn't that child be from Abram's own body? Sure it would. Makes sense. There's nothing specific that they've been given in terms of an actual verbal statement. This is exactly how this promise will work out and be fulfilled. There's a huge gap there. And we love to fill in the gaps. A little creativity, a little American ingenuity, a little do-it-yourself goes a long way in American Christianity. In the text, though, even though we want to be sympathetic with Abram and Sarai, I think there are multiple indications in the story that clue us into the fact that although we can sympathize with their struggle, we can sympathize with their impatience, their doubt, their uncertainty, nevertheless, what they do is wrong. It is not by faith that they pursue this course of action. And as Paul says in Romans, anything that's not of faith is sin. One clue that this is a sinful pursuit is that while Sarai recognizes the fact that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, as you go through Genesis 16, neither Sarai nor Abram talk to the Lord. The only talking that happens in chapter 16 is between God and Hagar. If the Lord is the one who's preventing you, maybe you should take it up with the Lord. No, 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 no. I've already done that. At least twice. So there's a strange absence of dialogue between Abram and Sarai and the Lord... Nothing in chapter 16 shows them in dialogue or in conversation or seeking the Lord's face. Number two, another indication that this is not 
a commendable plan that they have is that the narrator tells us that Abram, at the end of verse 2, listened to the voice of Sarai. This is not a chauvinistic statement. Rather, what this is, it points back to Genesis chapter 3, when God is confronting Adam and Eve, and when He is convicting Adam of his part in man's rebellion, He says, because you listen to the voice of your wife, implication being, rather than me, cursed is the ground because of you. So when the narrator tells us at the end of verse 2 that Abram listened to the voice of Sarai, that should raise a red flag. Wait a minute, Abram shouldn't be listening to Sarai or anyone else for that matter. He should be listening first and foremost to what the Lord has told him. Third, another indication that this is not faith-driven but flesh-driven is that when the plan succeeds, it does not lead to joy in the Abram household. Far from it. If the, if the goal, if the objective is merely to provide a descendant so that God's promise will be fulfilled, well, here it is. Hagar conceived she's going to give birth to a child. Success. No party. No celebration. In fact, what happens is, is that you find out that because this is the flesh driving this action, rather than being able to enjoy the quote-unquote fruit of your labor, there's more turmoil, there's more discord, there's actually more doubt now that comes into play, and all of these things indicate that from the get-go, this is not the way that things ought to be. Now, most of us probably don't need three reasons to demonstrate the fact that Abram and Sarai are operating according to the flesh and rather by, and, instead of by faith. We know this instinctively, but let me ask you just to, just to probe your heart and mind a little bit. The Lord is good to not let us be too comfortable in these passages. So let me put it on myself and see, maybe some of you would nod your head, oh yeah, I guess maybe we're similar, Merritt. Let me tell you what I find when I look at Genesis 16. I find that most of the time, the reason that I find this to be not of faith and of sin is because I find the plan to be distasteful. A wife gives another woman to her husband and says, hey, have a child with her. Culturally, I recoil at that. that. That's not the way that things are done. But you understand, I recoil at that more reflectively because of a cultural bias than I do a spiritual bias. So let me try to, let me try to turn it a little bit. What if we could take this paradigm or this little episode in Abram and Sarah's life and say, you know what, this happens with us more frequently than what we would like to admit. We have the promises of God, but the promises of God are painfully slow to reach their perfect fulfillment, are they not? 
It's okay to say yes. They are painfully slow to reach their perfect fulfillment. And so, as good-thinking Christians, we figure, oh, well, it must be that God is waiting on us to do something, to sort of hurry things along. You know, sort of a God-helps-those-who-help-themselves kind of mentality. So, we have promises in Scripture. Christ Himself says, I will build my church. Who's going to build the church? Christ is. All right, but, but Christ, you're, you're not building fast enough. Okay, Edgewood, here's what we're going to do. Because we, we need to, to up the tempo on this building project that God is doing, we've got some new ideas that we want to introduce that are going to enable God to do His work because for some reason He's just not been able to do it on our timeline. So here's a new program. Here's a new person. Here's a new way of thinking. Here's a new way of preaching. Here's a new way of teaching. And it makes sense. We'll get a broader audience. People will be more sympathetic with us. We'll be more attractive. And the church will be built. Are you sure that that thinking, that idea, that creativity is not fleshly? Or it could go in reverse for a church that's been established and has been around for a while, like Edgewood, that has a strong history. You begin to compare and contrast. Well, when was God really at work here at Edgewood? During this period right here. Well, what were we doing then? Oh, we were doing this. Therefore, in order to have God really working in our midst now, we need to duplicate what we were doing then so that we're doing it now because if we do that then the church will grow and it will flourish and it will prosper. Do you, you see that? Still the same mentality. It's just much more acceptable and tasteful and easier for us to reconcile in our own minds that it's okay for us to apply our effort, our agenda, our creativity in furthering the purposes of God. Or, husbands, you see that you're called to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And you say, well, that is a painfully, excruciatingly slow process. What am I going to do to see God's Word being fulfilled in my relationship with my wife? I know what I'll do. I'll go get one of those marriage books at the local Christian bookstore, ten ways not to survive but to thrive. And what I'll do is I'll do these suggestions, I'll put these things into practice, and I'll essentially work up this kind of miraculous, spiritual, godly love by applying these techniques to my marriage. Good luck. Or wives, you see that you're called to respect and honor your husbands. 
and you say, it is painfully and excruciatingly slow to see that quality being produced in me because of the guy that I'm living with. What are you going to do? Were you going to read a blog for Christian wives? You're going to listen to a podcast. You're going to get all of the kind of advice and counsel and feedback that you can get to know what is the way that real godly Christian women learn to respect their husbands, and then let me imitate that. Now, understand, I'm, I'm not suggesting, I don't mean to imply that there is not a place for good, wise, sound counsel in the day-to-day details of life. Here's the problem, though. What you see going on with Abram and Sarai is that the significant departure for them is when the Word of the Lord is something that is in the rearview mirror, and what is in their view, in focus, is their effort. Right? So that when it comes to building a church, when it comes to building a marriage or raising kids, or when it comes to my sanctification, my holiness… If at any point in time my mindset slips into the mold where the Word of God is sort of what gives me my start, but that was back then, and what I need is something now in order to make good on that back there, I'm I'm telling you, you're sliding into a fleshly mindset. You have to go back to the Word that God has spoken every single day. And you have to say to yourself what God has already said. So these dramatic statements in Scripture, Paul says in Thessalonians, may the God of all peace sanctify you, make you holy entirely. May He preserve you completely without blame until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. May you be perfected in your spirit, soul, and body. Faithful is He who calls you, He will bring it to pass. And so I wake up on Monday morning, or I'm at the office on Thursday, or I'm dealing with people at home, and I find that there is a lot of stuff going on in my heart and mind that cannot be characterized as sanctifying. There is anger, there is lust, there is bitterness, there is you name it, whatever it is. What are you going to do when your life does not seem to be taking shape in accordance with the promises of God. If you take a promise that God will sanctify you, that He will be faithful not only to call you but to do what He has called you to do, if you're going to make that promise yours and live by it, you're going to have to continue to pound that into your heart and into your mind. And then just as quickly as you're pounding it in, say, now, Lord, you've got to make good on this. I will walk by faith. I will do the loving thing, but I cannot generate this kind of love that you're calling me to. I will try, I will work by your Spirit to kill sin in my heart and mind, but I cannot eradicate sin in the way that you can. You've got to do this. At the end of the day, there are any number of things that we can grab hold of as a way to motivate us, as a way to encourage us, as a way to find the the way, the solution out of our problems in the Christian life 
They can sound reasonable. They can even sound spiritual. But it's like Proverbs says, every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. See, this is, this is really what it comes down to with Abram and Sarai. They can, they can plan whatever they want. They can make the fulfillment of the promise their objective, but if the motivation of their heart is not right, it does not matter what they plan, something is wrong. You can argue, you can debate, you can persuade, you can do whatever you want with your own brilliant mind. You can quote Scripture right and left, but I'm here to tell you, our hearts are so weak that we can use Scripture for unholy ends to justify our sinful behavior and desires. So having said all of that, let me just be very direct and explicit. If what we're seeing in Genesis 16 is an indication that rather than living by faith, Abram and Sarai are living by the flesh, by their own effort, by their own ingenuity, according to their own desires, maybe we could say, well, here are a couple things that we can see in this passage that would sort of be a, a test or a way to discern if that kind of attitude or heart is existing in us. So we've already seen it. But number one, here's one of the ways that you can examine yourself to see if you're living according to the flesh or living by faith. In whatever issue it is that you're wrestling with, your sanctification, your obedience, your faith, your marriage, your children, your workplace, whatever it is, bringing glory and honor to the Lord, do you pray? Do you pray about it? If you're not talking to the Lord about what it is that you're wrestling with, you're going to be talking to someone. You'll find someone else to give you counsel and advice, or God forbid, you'll just talk to yourself and you'll figure it out on your own. <laughs> Number two, we've already alluded to it, but in your desire to see the promises of God fulfilled, where does the Word stand in your line of view? Is the Word just something that God spoke sometime back then? And now you're, you're looking ahead and you're saying, well, yeah, he, he said that then, but now it's all about what He's going to do now. Or does the Word that He spoke previously, is that what you cling to and carry forward with you as you're waiting for those promises to be fulfilled? It works very closely with prayer. If my mind is not being driven to the Lord, if I'm not being encouraged to bring my complaints, my frustrations, my doubts to Him, I'm probably also not going to be holding very fast to His Word either. And then third... When you're eager and desires to see God's promises fulfilled in your life and you seek to 
accomplish that, does your effort require any kind of divine intervention? Or is your approach to this problem such that whether God helps or not, it really doesn't matter because I can do this on my own? That's a really big tip-off that you're operating according to the flesh and not by faith. The better path for Abram and Sarai, the better path for you and I, in our times of doubt, in our times of frustration, in our times of weakness, is to take God's Word back to Him and to say, God, I do not understand. This is what you have said. You hold it up to Him. You speak His Word back to Him, and you say, help me understand. How is this going to be done? How is this going to be fulfilled? Or maybe it's already in the process of being fulfilled, and I just don't see it. God, would you give me eyes to see? Would you not allow my faith to waver so that I think it's all on me to perform what you said you would do? So if that means that every single day of the week I'm having to fight the same sin over and over again, okay, Fight the same sin over and over again, but do it holding fast to the Word of God, believing that in God's timing and in God's work, He is going to give you freedom from that sin that He has redeemed you from. Don't try to find another way to beat sin on your own. Don't try to find a system. Go to the Lord. Repeat back to Him what He has already said to you and said to us. Put it on Him. He loves it when that happens, by the way. He relishes the opportunity. And what you will find, what we find, is that when we do that, There is this paradoxical sort of way in which even as we continue to struggle, even when we continue to trip up and fail, because of the fact that we are keeping the Lord and His Word at the forefront of our view, even when we experience difficulty and temptation and failure, there is a settled confidence that you can have even in your lowest points. Listen to what one old dead guy had to say reflecting on Abram and Sarai in these early verses, referring to Abram and this plan to have a child through Hagar. He says, he thinks the matter is succeeding well when he sees her pregnant and pleases himself in foolish confidence. But when contention suddenly arises, he is at his wit's end. You see how quickly the confidence in the flesh fails? All it takes is one bump in the road, and all the confidence, all my ingenuity comes to nothing. When contention suddenly arises, he is at his wit's end and rejects all hope, or at least forgets it. The same thing must necessarily happen to us as often as we attempt anything contrary to the Word of God. 
Our minds will fail at the very first blast of temptation since our only ground of stability is to have the authority of God for what we do. People, don't buy into the lie that you can do what only God can do for you. Don't buy into the lie that God needs your help. God has promised life and salvation to His people in this age and in the age to come. And He simply says, for anyone who wants it, all they have to do is believe that I am able to give it to them and I'll do it. And then we walk in faith and obedience, watching as God fulfills and performs His perfect Word in us and through us. So when faith gives way to flesh, we're tempted to domesticate God's promise, which means we find ways to simplify or to make God's promises more manageable. It's something that we can do ourselves. Of course, in Genesis 16, that just leads to more problems and more disaster. It doesn't solve anything. Now, here's the interesting thing in the second half of Genesis chapter 16 is that although Abram and Sarai are the ones who hold the promise, all of the attention and focus gets shifted onto Hagar. You would expect that the Lord would come and would intervene, so to speak, by correcting Abram and Sarai. He doesn't do it. He doesn't come to talk to Abram and Sarai. He comes and he talks to Hagar. Hagar's not the one he gave the promise to. He gave the promise to Abram. Why are you wasting your time with Hagar? Don't miss this. The kindness and the grace of our God. There is a way in which God's gracious work for Hagar, who is not the one that God promised to, is a subtle, gentle rebuke to Abram and Sarai. So, for example, the Lord finds Hagar in the wilderness, running from the misery that she's been living through with Abram and Sarai. The Lord says, this son that you've had, you're going to name him Ishmael, Yishmael, God hears. And then look in verse 11, you're going to call him Ishmael because the Lord, New American Standard says, given heed, the Lord has given heed to your affliction. It's the, it's the Shema word, the, the part of Ishmael. The Lord has heard your affliction. Pause right there for a minute. Notice what it does not say. It does not say, you will call him Ishmael because the Lord has heard your prayer to him. What has the Lord heard? He's heard her affliction. He has not heard Hagar calling out to him. Apparently, she has not. Does that stop God? from graciously condescending and saving Hagar? Well, you know, Hagar, things could have turned out much better for you if you had just said this, or if you had petitioned me this way, 
Or is God so gracious and kind that simply because he hears, quote-unquote, the groanings of this woman, he is moved into action? And see, here's the way that it works with Abram and Sarai. Abram, Sarai. I made no promises to this woman. This woman has not called on my name, and yet I have reached down in mercy to provide and protect her in her time of desperation simply because I heard and saw her need. Why didn't you think that I would do that for you, who I have made promises to? who I have bound myself to. Do you see how this works? If God can do it for Hagar, for this Egyptian woman who is not calling out for His help, to whom God is not obligated to do any gracious thing, shouldn't Abram and Sarai be all the more confident that God will do far more than what they could ask or think because He has bound Himself to them We are surrounded by the kindness of God every waking moment of the day. It is to our conviction and shame that we do not see the goodness and kindness of God as motivation to call out to Him. Every day that the sun rises on a world that is bent to rebel against its creator and king. Every day that the sun rises is a miraculous act of kindness. Every single moment that the sinful, depraved impulses of a man's heart do not result in God striking him dead on the spot is an incredible act of mercy and kindness. We swim. We swim in the kindness of God. We're immersed in it. But we are so slow to call out to him. Why? Merit, if I cause my sun to rise and my rain to fall on both the just and the unjust, on those who are by nature children of wrath, why would I not freely give to you in Christ every good thing? You have not because you ask not. Why don't you ask? Further, the subtle rebuke that is given to Abram and, Sarah, Abram and Sarai is not just simply in the fact that the Lord hears the affliction of a woman who is not calling out to Him, who sees and hears her groanings and intervenes of His own free kindness and love. 
you have to love the way that this chapter ends. Hagar has an opportunity to name God. First person in Scripture who ever gets to name God is this forgotten, miserable Egyptian woman. But it gets better than that. She gets to name God according to the way that God has revealed Himself uniquely to her. She goes back to Abram and Sarai, and apparently she relates to them, relays to them what it was that happened, and that the Lord said His name is going to be Ishmael because God hears. And look at the end of the chapter, verse 15, who names Ishmael Ishmael? Abram does. Abram names this son God hears. You don't think that has a way of sticking in your mind? You don't think that has a way of reminding you over and over of this timeless truth that if God's people call out to Him, He hears when they call? Listen, you know what this man is going to live with, this man and his wife? For 10, 12, 13 years or so before we ever get to Isaac? He's going to wake up in the morning and he's going to hear this other woman calling out, God hears, it's time for breakfast. God hears, go clean up your room. God hears, turn the music down. God hears, it's time to do your chores. God hears, come in for supper. God hears, God hears, God hears. You think God is trying to get a message through to Abram and Sarai? Hey, those who hold the promise, do you know that I have committed myself to you? Not because of you, because that's just what I chose to do. And do you know because I am doing this, because I chose to do it, all you have to do is call upon me and I will hear. In your challenges and your difficulties in the Christian life, do not fall prey to the weakness of your flesh that says when God's promises appear to be slow, or when it appears that I have failed for the hundredth time, therefore it now falls on me to see to it that God's Word is going to be fulfilled. Don't do that. Take the Word of God and call out to Him. Ask Him to fulfill what He has already promised to do and walk by faith knowing not only that He is able, but that He is reliable and trustworthy to do it. Let's pray. Father, how tremendous are the promises in Your Word that are given to us that make our failures in the flesh even more stark. 
than the failure that we see here with Abram and Sarai. You tell us in your word, in Romans 8, that your Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, that the Spirit knows your mind and as such prays perfectly in accordance with your will, and yet we still doubt that you're for us. We still doubt that you are going to make good on the work that you have begun in us. You tell us in your word that we should be anxious for nothing, but that with everything or in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, we are to make our request known to you, and that the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Forgive us for so easily forgetting that and from turning from faith to our flesh. Help us to know by faith the resurrection power of Jesus Christ in every decision, in every effort that we make, driven on by the Holy Spirit so that you receive glory for doing your work in our midst. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet as we close the service with Great is Thy Faithfulness. Great is Thy